0: Hey listeners, this is Sam Klinger on Culture Conversations with iHub. Today, we are talking with Christy Seawright, former professor at Brigham Young University. As a professor, Christy led many study abroads to East Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. We'll talk about her experiences and the lessons she's learned about international bribery. Christy, uh, can you tell us where you're from and give us some background in your work experience?
1: I uh, grew up in Southern California, which I love. The weather there—I've never quite adjusted to the Utah snow, but uh, it is gorgeous here. I did my undergraduate degree here at BYU, and then I um, did some graduate work at University of Utah. I actually ended up getting a second bachelor's degree there because I switched to business, and then I got an MBA. And in the process of the MBA, I uh, moved into the PhD program in operations management and international business. Then um, after I finished my undergraduate degree in Provo, I was married and I was actually a full-time homemaker and mother for 18 years. And then as my kids grew, uh, I came to BYU visiting for a year and then I stayed for 25 years. So. I uh, was a professor in the Global Supply Chain Group in the Marriott School, and uh, was very involved in some international activities with students and with uh, some consulting, etc. There are a few different kinds of activities. We, um, my family and I, husband and and one son, um, lived in Belarus for about half of half a year doing a Fulbright fellowship. And that was quite fascinating. It was 1996. So the the Belarusian constitution was written in 1993. So it was a very young country and they only had one presidential election. That president proclaimed himself president for life and is still in power. Mm-hmm. So that created some very interesting business scenarios. I also spent, well, a couple of years total in the Asia Pacific. It was about two months at a time over a period of about 15 or 20 years. Some of that was with BYU students. So we did several study abroad programs there for business students to have the opportunity to go to three to five different countries so they could observe business in different environments in different economic environments, different political situations, different cultures, and learn from business leaders how business was done. I just retired last summer, mm-hmm. but the last several years before I retired, we spent a lot of time in Africa, a couple of months a year, maybe two or three months a year, some with consulting and, and some with students. We had a great program there. Let me just tell you how it got started. Uh, We were in a a village in Malawi, and we were just asking some people um, what some of their problems were, what they were kind of explaining to us through interpreters, what some of their problems were. And the main problem that the women were discussing was that they had to walk further and pay more money for firewood. And so, of course, my curiosity got to me, and I started looking into some of the reasons why that was the case. And... I was aware that they used firewood for cooking their grain-based diets in in most of sub-Saharan Africa but I didn't realize that the um, trees were starting to disappear and forests were starting to disappear in fact in Malawi 4 to 5% of the forests disappear every year because they're cut down for fire fuel they don't have electricity in the villages and petroleum-based fuels are very expensive. So we got together with some students who decided, let's do a study abroad. And part of the study abroad, we spent a couple of weeks in Malawi working in two villages to work with them and determine ways to uh, produce charcoal. And they grow maize. That's their main staple is basically corn flour. And about 80% of the population are subsistence farmers. So there's a lot of corn grown in Malawi, and the um, corn stalks at the end of the harvest, they just burned them. It was actually quite a cause of air pollution. The students developed a method for making charcoal out of those corn stalks. Now, they found a lot of information online from other efforts, but then they had to adapt it to the conditions in Malawi. And um, found in order to carbonize the corn stalks, that they were able to build a kiln out of bricks that were made from mud, so it was free basically. Then they carbonized the corn stalks, and then got a binding agent, which is kind of like a water-based pudding with starch, and um, put in the carbonized corn material. And then they went to a welder in town, and for just a couple of dollars, were able to get a press made, and they made some small charcoal. We went back the next year and found that they had found different binding agents that originally they were using starch that was food and they don't have enough food. So that's not an appropriate use of of edible starch. But they had found several other uh, things that worked and um, improved on the process.
0: Do you know, were they making the charcoal for themselves or were they trying to sell it? I think one of the villages, they said that they had in selling the charcoal to other villagers, but did you see that in year three?
1: Yes, that's another really important issue because in the villages where they're subsistence farmers, the only way to get cash is to sell their food that they grow. Now, sometimes they grow cash crops. The primary one is tobacco, but the demand for Malawi tobacco is dropping because, um, they're able to raise tobacco closer to the manufacturers and it's less expensive for the companies that process the tobacco. And I think
0: it ruins the soil as well, right?
1: It completely leaches many of the nutrients that are needed to grow corn. So it does create problems. But many of the villagers who used to grow tobacco no longer do. So they were looking for ways to generate cash. There are a couple of important reasons why. Number one... Children can't go to school without uniforms and school materials, and so children aren't getting educated, especially girls. But also, malaria. There are supposed to be uh, medications provided by the government, but that isn't consistent, especially in rural areas. Distribution isn't good, and there are other factors, Uh some fairly corrupt (laughs) factors that may impact that. But they can't get the malaria meds, and in 2017, about 400,000 children in sub-Saharan Africa died of malaria. And the malaria medicine, which is quite effective, costs about a dollar fifty. So we were trying to help them generate cash, um, and they were able to sell charcoal for about a hundred percent markup. So that became a source of cash also.
0: What are some of the challenges while doing these humanitarian projects abroad, specifically in Malawi and Africa?
1: From my perspective, the primary challenge is figuring out how to help people in the villages to help themselves. Almost every village I walk into in Africa, and even in other rural areas in developing countries, the first question they ask me is often, What are you going to give us? And I've heard about numerous projects where people come in and bring things or give things away, and it makes life better for a short period of time. But for grassroots development to take place, people need to have something sustainable, economically sustainable from our business perspective. They need to have skills. Uh, You know, when I walk into the village and they ask what we're going to give them, At first, my first thought was to say nothing. We don't give you anything. But then I realized, no, we give you ideas, skills, technologies that you can adapt and improve your lives. And we don't usually say this, but at the end of our time with them, we usually find that it has also given them hope because they've discovered that the way things have always been doesn't need to be the way things will be in the future that they're responsible and they need to make the difference and you know it's really quite astounding they're very bright people we love working with them because we'll
0: present an idea
1: and then they'll improve on it or they'll say could we do this another problem that we've discovered that there's there are serious Um, deficiencies, dietary deficiencies, and of course one is protein, which is because they eat a lot of starch, primarily starch, and there's a lot of malnutrition associated with that, but also iron, vitamin A, and vitamin C, and they love mangoes. The mangoes grow for about four months of the year, and they just can't eat them all in time, and they fall on the ground, and, and many of them rot. So we thought maybe we could help preserve those. Mangoes do have some iron content. They're very high in vitamin A. They're also very high in vitamin C, but preserving them does destroy some of the vitamin C. But we did some research and found that if we covered the fruit that was drying with a cotton cloth, then the heat could get in to do the drying, but some of the destruction of the nutrients is by the radiation. And that blocks the radiation, but still allows the heat in. And if it's cotton, it allows the moisture to leave. And they can dry fruit and they can dry it in a day. And so we had taught them how to dry. When we were there, mangoes weren't in season. Mm-hmm. But we worked with some papayas, which are very similar in nutritional content. And we tried some other fruits too. And then one of the villagers showed us a pile of pumpkins, hundreds of pumpkins that they had raised and had just harvested. I guess pumpkins grow like zucchinis. (laughs) And they steam them and and eat them and get a lot of vitamin A and some other vitamins from them. They have no cold rooms. It's warm there. When we were there in the dead of winter, it was 75 degrees. (laughs) So, yes. (laughs) So, they couldn't... um, eat them all and they had no way to preserve them and they said can we dry those and it was like they're thinking they're taking this idea and generalizing it or adapting it to other things and so we um, did some dried pumpkin and when it was dried we crumbled it up to powder and provided some ziploc bags and told them how to get them when they sell their first fruit to then buy a package of Ziploc bags because they could make enough to buy a package of small mm-hmm. snack size Ziploc bags. But then we showed them how to reconstitute it. It was like um, mashed instant mashed potatoes. I mean, they have nothing instant. Everything is made from scratch three times a day. The women probably cook two, three, four hours a day. And they could just pour boiling water in and there's their relish to go with their SEMA. Mm -hmm. The SEMA being the corn meal, mm -hmm, the very, very thick (laughs) corn meal that's their staple. Getting back to your original question of how to best help when uh, helping people improve their lives, development is the, the major objective. We have to depend on them and learn from them how they do things, what they eat, how they process things, how they They live their lives, what they have available, and they're very open, and they share that with us. Didn't you find that? that...
0: Yeah, they were very open, and I mean, I had an experience where we presented them an idea, and they took that idea and kind of tweaked it a little bit to something where oh, that works for them, because they know, they understand the resources available to them. We don't.
1: So teaching principles sometimes is important, um, rather than methods. Sometimes you need methods, too, but they need to understand the principles behind it. And that, I think, is what gives them the most hope, is that they see that they can make a difference. And they also see new ways to use those ideas or technologies or better ways to produce charcoal or new foodstuffs that they can dry and preserve especially items that only grow annually and are harvested in the main harvest.
0: Mm-hmm. Um did you see any, you know, rocket stoves in year three? How how did that project go in the third year?
1: Um we had asked again, you know, a, a year later we had asked the villagers what are some of your major problems? And one of the major problems that the women mentioned was cooking and they said come and watch. So we went and watched and they have cooking huts that are separate from the house because of the smoke, but they're not ventilated. So the smoke is all swirling around within the cooking huts, and the women are cooking there three times a day, and actually in some of that region, women were having lung problems. Um, the, The number was rising of lung cancer and other lung diseases in their early forties because of inhaling all of this smoke. But also they have the tiny babies on their backs that are in the cooking huts with them. So um, when Bowen expressed an interest in going, and he's a construction management, he he was a major, now he's a construction manager (laughs) in Denver, but he um, indicated an interest in working on that. And his father had built rocket stoves. So he had some experience with that. And they were able to build a stove that vented the smoke out the back through a small um, hole that they lined with bricks. But then the people came and put in small pieces of PVC pipe because they had a better idea of how to vent that and how to get the smoke further away using the PVC pipe. So they were now able to cook with less wood or charcoal. Depending on what they were using, and they were able to vent that out. Yeah, it was pretty it's a win-win. fun. And when they showed them how it worked and took them around the back to see the vent, the women cried. So then, when we went to Chikui Village, the new village we went to last year, they took us to see their their rocket stove, and they had a sign um, that they had handwritten on a piece of paper and taped it on the cooking hut that said stove with Chimney, C-H-I-M-M-U-N-Y. <laughs> and we thought that was the best <laughs> chimney we ever saw. <laughs> I should tell you about some of the things we're doing this year. I'm working with um, my husband and I and a couple of others who have been volunteering a lot of their time are working with an organization called Extending Reach International. It's a new not-for-profit organization that is doing some of these similar things. And we have a group of young adults going in about two weeks to um, Zambia, Livingstone. Uh, it's Kasungula near the river. There's a, a place where all the trucks cross the river. Zambia is very rich in copper, and it's being mined and being transported by truck to China, the world's factory. So they have to cross the the Zambezi River to get into. Botswana to get to Namibia to get to the port. So trucks line up um, for two reasons. One is that the ferry that takes them across the river can take two trucks at a time, and often there will be a hundred trucks lined up in the morning. Also, some of them have to wait a couple of days for their um, bill of lading to get the permission to take the extracted materials out of Zambia and to take their load into Botswana, so different um, customs issues that they're dealing with. And so there are lots of trucks lined up right there at the river and there are several villages there and um, unfortunately the poverty in these villages combined with this ready market makes for a scenario where there's a lot of unfortunate trafficking of daughters taking place. So uh, we're trying to help them find other ways to make their lives better, to improve their their way of life, and to raise money, to earn money, much more money. We have four projects we're working on this year. The primary one, they've talked about wanting to increase the yield of their crops. Their maize crops are um, not very, abundant i guess would be the right word and trying to increase the yield of their especially their maize and so we're going to be teaching them how to enrich the, the soil. soil we have a student who is a senior in biochemistry here at BYU who is putting together he's been talking with folks in Malawi at, at the school for agriculture for family independence Safi. Safi. and he's researched all these different leaves and finding now how to adapt those principles to the area in Zambia and find out what leaves would work best and what um, other materials are readily available and inexpensive. So that's one thing they requested. They also requested to learn how to make charcoal. They also want to learn to dry fruits. We actually have a couple of students doing an internship there and they're going to stay a little longer and they're going to work on teaching them how to package it, how to preserve the food and the charcoal and how to sell it. Because both of those items should sell to other villagers, but the dried fruit, there certainly should be a market, a steadily, consistently replenished market every day of truck drivers driving through. And one of the students, BYU students, who went with us on the study abroad, She had sat down with the women, you saw the women. Uh, They dry the corn out in the field and then they only bring in the ears of corn and stack them way up. And then they take it with their hand and Mm -hmm. remove the kernels with their thumbs, things. And she and another student, Jake, figured out how to use a piece of PVC pipe that's maybe four inches long and put seven screws around it and it worked. It worked really well. They, They did some timing. And found that it's at least ten times faster for the women, wow. so they were really excited, and they also could make those and sell them for probably seventy five to hundred percent profit. The problem is you have to buy a whole PVc
0: pipe, which is the initial capital uh-huh. it's
1: it's a dollar fifty, which is a lot of money, but if they can each make one and sell one and then pool their money. Half of their money, they can buy another p v c pipe together and each get two that they could make and sell one and keep one for themselves and and the one they sell they could again
0: reinvest rein- and mm-hmm. keep it going
1: so we're going to try to help them learn that
0: that's great, so what is malawi like? um maybe we can start out you know what's you know what's the government of malawi like
1: well there are are actually Layers of governing bodies, because there are the traditional leaders, which are um, villages and within the ethnic groups, and then there is the political government of the countries, and the borders of the countries. Uh, many of them were drawn by European countries who were uh, invested in in Africa, and then most of them left most of these countries gained independence in the 60s or 70s around around that time so many of these countries are quite young but the indigenous governing system that works in villages and and there are villages and then there are collections of villages and there and there are collections of collections of villages there are several layers of indigenous governing which covers a lot of things um Actually the role of the headman of a village is traditionally to make sure that everyone in the village is taken care of and if if someone runs out of food then the the head of the village might talk with others in the village to make sure everyone has the basics that they need um the headman of the village controls the cemetery we found one village that had been doing some of these projects to improve their soil and to to improve their way of life that the headman of the village basically made it mandatory, and those who did not participate could not use the cemetery and when I heard that at my first thought was, "Is that a huge incentive?" But I didn't realize that the use of the cemetery. Every family needs it once or twice a year or more mm. with cousins or aunts or children or um their the life expectancy is much shorter, so it was an important aspect of their lives and um this is how how there has been order in these organizations in these groups of people for many years. But some of these groups span across different borders. For instance, in Malawi, the vast majority of the people are Chechewa. But part of that group also expands into eastern Zambia and into northern uh, Mozambique, which is on the east. And the actual country lines that were drawn by foreigners tend to not be drawn around ethnic groups. So... There's still that layer. um, There's a king of the Chechewa people. But then in, and he's actually in Chipata in eastern Zambia. His Mm -hmm. home is there. And then there's a president and a parliament in Malawi that comes from all over the country of Malawi. And of course, it's only been around for maybe 40, 50 years. It has become more influential over time and the political entities, because they are gaining in influence and power within their countries, a lot of that is because they control funds, mm-hmm. some of which comes from foreign governments or from NGOs um, to, to influence aid that comes, um, has empowered some organizations. When we were there and we were at the parliament, one of the representatives from a certain area of Malawi had to leave. And it was um, fairly interesting to watch. They have a, they're modeled after some of the British government institutions. And so they have a large ceremonial mace that they carry in and set down, which means, okay, now parliament is in session. Well, this individual that was speaking, it turns out was wearing his headdress that was indigenous to his area and his village and his people. And that is against the rules in the parliament because the parliament is supposed to represent the country and this represents uh, rural indigenous people. And so he was not allowed to wear that. And it turns out a, a week or so earlier, he had been invited to leave because of wearing the headdress and he was suspended for a week and he came back wearing the same, it's like a, a fur crown. He was asked to remove it and he would not, and he was speaking. And so the, the head of parliament invited him to quit speaking and to leave and he wouldn't stop speaking and he wouldn't leave. Um, So they got this, the ceremonial mace that they carried and uh, a couple of folks that played a role, such as sergeant at arms, carried it over and stood by him and escorted him out. And um, that kind of, I think, represented this two different layers of of governing that takes place in um,
0: Sub-Saharan Africa and many, in parts, many of Africa.
1: parts of many parts of Sub-Saharan Africa.
0: Uh-huh. That is so interesting. So, what was it like? Going to these Malawian villages,
1: the the people were so warm. Of course, the villages we went to asked for us to come, so um, we were invited guests rather than uh, any other type of of person just uh, appearing on the scene. But we were we were guests, and they greeted us with song and dancing. Especially the women did um, a lot of singing and dancing, and and uh came out to the, the vans to greet us as we arrived. Then we always have a meeting when we arrive um, and when we leave. And that in that meeting, the chief or head head person of the village discusses the the agenda, what we're doing, our purpose and everything. Then we would um we broke into groups to work on different projects but um they were just so warm in greeting us and and of course for the the head of the village there are ways to show respect that that you like the clap with your hands cupped so it's not a flat hand but a cupped hand and shows respect mm-hmm. so it's always fun to learn the different cultural aspects and customs that you find in different areas i've i've had people ask me what's the Culture of Africa like, or what's the culture of Asia like? And it's like there are many cultures. Even within individual countries, there might be multiple cultures. And and of course there're gender differences in acculturation. So it's it's always enjoyable. And they teach us as we work with them. You know why are why are we doing it this way? And they'll explain why they do it that way. And it makes no sense until they explain. And then it makes. Total sense. Especially, it helps us better understand their perspective. The first year, the first village we went to, a couple of the students uh, weren't, had forgotten to clap with the cupped hands for the chief, and he joked about finding them each a chicken. So that they <laughs> had to pay a fine of a chicken that would go to someone who needed food in the village. <laughs> That's funny.
0: For our listeners, could you do the chief clap?
1: Sure, well let me do the flat hand clap so okay. you can hear the difference. So this is the normal clap and then the chief clap makes a very different sound.
0: Perfect. So in your travels and your work abroad, did you ever come across bribery or corruption or other ethical dilemmas while while in those countries?
1: Bribery or corruption is pretty universal. Whenever there's an opportunity, there seem to be opportunistic people who are Anxious to take advantage. In developing countries, especially such as many of the countries we've been in, in in sub-Saharan Africa, where the poverty is quite extreme, especially in the rural locations, life is desperate. Just trying to hold life together is desperate. But also, these young countries don't have well-established institutions that can help to alleviate corruption or prevent corruption, so it's very difficult to control. You find it with any people in a gatekeeper role, so you, you really have to work to find honest people, which is challenging because salaries are low and um, poverty is is extreme. I was in Cambodia with a group of students many years ago and they had all gone into the market to shop and uh, I had had plenty of shopping time for (laughs) for me and so I was just sitting and talking with the tour guide and tour guide is a really good job because for instance government jobs paid at that time about $40 a month but tour guides every group that came gave them one or two hundred dollars in tips usually. And they could have one or two groups a month. So that was usually perceived as a really good job. And um, I was sitting with him, and we were just chatting, and he was telling me about Cambodia, etc. And then he got a phone call and was speaking in his native tongue, so I didn't understand him. But I could see him getting happier and happier and happier as this phone call went on. And so afterwards, I said to him, That must have been very good news. And he said, oh, it was very good news. I just got the job of a policeman. And knowing that civil servants are so poorly paid, I said, why would you give up the job of a tour guide to be a policeman? And he said, oh, because you can stop people on the road all day long and hold them until they make it worth your time. And it had never dawned on me. That I mean we experienced that in Malawi. We had someone who stopped our van going to Safi, going north, coming back south. Uh, the same one stopped us mm. and wouldn't let us go um unless we paid a bribe. And of course we don't. This is one thing I've learned. I'll tell you talk about this in just a minute. But you just have to have zero tolerance for for bribery because if you pay it once it's more the next time and more the next time it's a very slippery slope the problem is you're corrupting someone you're you know increasing their their expectations for handouts for unearned compensation so um we're in the van going north they stopped us and they they checked all of our licenses and everything and, and just held us and wouldn't let us go and so you know we sat there for about 20 minutes and we said no we're not going to to pay and we just sat there sang some songs and (laughs) got out of the van stretched our legs and and they kept coming back looking for something that they could find and um they couldn't find anything illegal and so finally after about 20 minutes they let us go but boy they were watching for us and it was like four or five days later, when we came back, that they um, stopped us coming back. And it was the same police person. And she kept us for about 35 minutes. And she took our um, driver's, Wiston's Mm -hmm. driver's license. Oh, wow. And so he couldn't leave. And after, you know, after about 35 minutes, I'm going... You know, is this a game of chicken who's going to blink first? And so I just got out and pulled out my phone, got the camera ready, and started to take a picture of her ID, the policeman's ID. Mm -hmm. And I took a picture, hoping I wouldn't get thrown in jail.
0: Did she see the camera? Oh, yeah. Okay.
1: And she said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I I just need to. I mean, I didn't really take the picture, Mm -hmm. but I pretended to take the picture, and I could have if I needed to. But um, she said, um, you know, what are you doing? And I said, well, I just thought I'd get a copy of your ID so I have your name and your your ID number. Why do you need that? And this is true, we had a meeting set up the next day with the minister in the Department of Justice, in the Ministry of Justice. It ended up falling through, he went out of town, but (laughs) we had that set up for the next day. And I said, Well, I just, you know, we're meeting with the Minister of Justice tomorrow, and who's her boss? Boss's 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 boss. Is boss, is boss, is boss. Mm-hmm. And um, and we just wanted to ask him how this works and, and what the expectations are and why we're being detained and why this isn't, oh, this is just a misunderstanding. <laughs> but, you know, it, I don't think that's a wise thing to do very often.
0: You can that solution worked in this situation. It did in
1: that situation and I didn't want to terrify her or threaten her but I just wanted her to know that we don't pay bribes and I just came out bluntly and said we don't pay this kind of money. We we don't pay inappropriate fines, we don't pay inappropriate service fees, but I am going to, you know, see if there's something that You know, I will ask the Minister of Justice if there's a law we need to know about that we weren't doing this something correctly or what we needed to do differently in the future. And, um, but it, it was just, it was very hot and we were going to be late for a meeting and we just needed to, to go. So I did have that discussion.
0: So in in many cultures giving gifts is seen as essential to maintaining and strengthening relationships. Would giving gifts be okay in certain cir- circumstances if the dollar amount is immaterial or insignificant?
1: You know, that's a really interesting question because gifts uh, in in different cultures gifts make a big difference in the relationship and in some countries that I've been in in Asia for instance, um, the value of the gift actually communicates the
0: value of the
1: relationship to you.
0: I guess in the United States, sometimes a sentimental gift is more important than the dollar amount of the gift.
1: Mm-hmm. It might be
0: the opposite, where, you know, it might be a sentimental gift for us, but because the dollar amount is so low, it it appears that we don't value the relationship. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, here, you know, we have the saying that it's the thought that counts. That's not universal. Sometimes it's the price or the value that counts. Um, But there are ways to maybe have something unique in your company that you give that isn't expensive but unique and valuable Mm -hmm. to, to create value outside of dollar amounts.
0: It sounds like, you know, bribery and corruption are inherent where there are no institutions to police it or low living standards where, you know, we don't know where the next meal's coming from, so
1: you know, Those I'm gonna try to encouraged. I'm gonna
0: try to make take mm-hmm. this bribe.
1: Well and the the suffering that results from a a small number of people improving their lives makes it very difficult for the rest of the population. For instance, there are some countries where um medications are provided by the government. It's part of their their social services health system but it's very hard for people especially in rural areas to to get the medicine because the people who were charged with delivering it or the people who um order it ordered less and got kickbacks or took some for themselves to sell on um, on the open market to make extra money or or You know, just different gatekeeper functions where they're empowered to serve themselves rather than to serve the population for which they're hired to do or which their position would indicate they
0: should do. So it's not just power plants and businesses, but it can get into, you know, distribution of malaria Mm -hmm. pills.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. That's um... Mm sad. Or fertilizer that's provided for poor farmers. I was told of a a situation where the government provided fertilizer to extra poor farmers every couple of years so that they could improve their soil and increase their yield. And um, the truck drivers delivering it there, usually when they got to the distribution point, there weren't as many bags of fertilizer on it as there were when they left the left town to go out into the country. And so, they had um police escorts added and they had the same problem but the police were improving their standard of living too <laughs> so it's just difficult when the the people empowered or entrusted to enforce the law or to protect the citizenry are equally involved because they have access to assets or they have access to individuals that can help line their pockets it's very tempting and very challenging to not not participate in those kinds of corrupt activities when when their future is not certain either the economic future is not certain and that is not to say that everyone in these positions does this Mm -hmm. it's just much easier to happen there
0: Thank you so much for being with us today, Christy. Do you have any final words of wisdom for those who are traveling abroad or working abroad? I think I would just say that I don't think I've
1: ever been anywhere in the world that I haven't fallen in love with the people, The our brothers and sisters around the world are just dealing with the same issues that we are. They have the same challenges. Sometimes they have more challenges or different challenges, but we're, we're all in this together. And I think the more we interface with each other around the world, the more we realize that we're all from the same family, that we're all citizens of the world. Of course, we love our countries, but we're also citizens of this big, beautiful world.
0: Thanks for joining us, and we hope you can join us again next time.